Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, before we start, we want to let you all know that we're doing another live show. It's going to be on Wednesday, March 20th at 7 p.m. at the Lee Strasberg Theater in West Hollywood. We're going to have a casting panel where we're going to speak to TV, film, and commercial casting directors about how to get great actors into your work. We'll cover audition techniques from both director and actor sides and learn what directors can do to find the perfect actors for their projects. And we're also going to have refreshments and lots of schmoozing time. Tickets are free for any patron tier on Patreon. Or it's just five bucks on Eventbrite. But seating is limited, so make sure you get your tickets. Check it out at live.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 291st episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Caleb King, who is getting a hat at the $10 level. Thanks, Caleb. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Unlow. Today we've got the filmmakers behind the film The Spine of Night. For our Halloween spooky episode, The Spine of Night is an ultraviolet epic fantasy set in the land of magic. Wait, did you say um, ultraviolet or ultraviolet? Oh, well, uh, maybe I meant both, but ultraviolet. Yeah, it's it's quite uh, quite graphic, quite naked, super fun, uh, rotoscoped animated film. We've got the filmmakers Philip Galat and Morgan Galen King on to talk about the process of hand, like painstakingly rotoscoping a feature film. Not entirely themselves, but but boy, nearly literally and certainly spiritually. They had a, a small team of collaborators, but I think it's a really awesome conversation about how you can make an awesome, kick-ass, no-holds-barred movie the way you want to. That is insane. Uh, do not watch it with your kids. Do not, wa- do not watch it with your kids. And it premiered at South By, right? Yeah. I think it was a, yeah. They played South By this year. I think it was the premiere. And yeah, and Morgan worked on it for seven years, maybe seven longer. Years. I think but, Phil is pretty much there the whole time also. But it is a classic example of just shooting it, bootstrapping it. They worked on it together for a significant amount of time before producers came on or any outside money came on. And then eventually they had actors like Richard E. Grant, Lucy Lawless, Patton Oswalt, Betty Gabriel, Joe Mangianello, all sorts of awesome people who, uh, as we talk about, are kind of in the the nerdy world. So people who would uh, respond to the films of like Ralph Bakshi or kind of like those animated, crazy um, rotoscoped films from the 70s and 80s, basically. Most notably, The Lord of the Rings. If you were ever a kid who was like, oh, I want to watch Lord of the Rings and your parents brought home the wrong video, um, that that might be your your way in. But um or Cool World, Cool World, uh, oh, yeah. Ralph Brad Pitt movie. Brad Pitt, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the adult kind of anti-Disney sort of animator. Um, anyway, uh, the point is, it's cool, it's psychedelic, it's really wild, and, and like I said, bootstrapped. Uh, so it's a movie that they made exactly how they wanted to make it, and that's pretty inspiring and cool. Yeah, it's a great example of making a feature before you have the resources to make it just by making it on your own and letting it grow which with animation you kind of have you know more 
more freedom to do things like that. But anyhow, very cool. Very fun conversation. Before we talk to them, Matt, uh, we're just going to mention real quick that this like awful thing happened yesterday. A cinematographer that we have a lot of friends in common with on Facebook died on set in an accident. It's crazy. We just want to, uh, we're sure a lot of our listeners knew her and um, just wanted to, to say that we're thinking of, of everyone and yeah, just kind of a reminder of how crazy <laughs> what we do is. And I don't know, not, not, I don't really have anything to add to the conversation aside from um, just the awareness of this and, and thinking about the, the people that were involved. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we can leave most of the conversation to people uh, smarter or at least louder than us uh, on social media, et cetera. But um yeah, it's, it's so so sad, and always it, these sorts of accidents hit uh, me especially hard because um, indie filmmakers are a special group of people and um, a community I feel really close to. So it, it was a bummer. It's really terrible. Um, so every, stay safe, everyone. Um, safety protocols are important, and um, and you know there's a lot of accidents on set that are avoidable, and it's all up to us to actively work to avoid them. Yeah, prevent so, that first stuff from happening. It's terrible. Maybe can we dedicate an episode to? to I, don't, I don't know. Is that weird? Sure, certainly. I mean, this feels like a strange one. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, we're we're thinking of Helena. Helena Hutchins is a cinematographer, and uh, Joel Souza is the director. And yeah, thinking of them. Yeah, and and everyone else, stay safe. Yes. Anyhow, um, we should uh, hop into this interview. Before we do that, we want to remind people we have a Patreon page, Patreon.com/slash/justshootapod. It's where you can uh, support the podcast, um, trying to bring you current news and our thoughts on filmmaking and cool guests. And I think knowing that people listen, especially knowing that we have Patreon patrons that listen is super helpful. We've gotten a lot of really kind emails recently. We had, oh man, I didn't do the, <laughs> I didn't do the secret words. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a master of starting trends that end after two times but we did have i'm just gonna maybe do one one shout out to george vk who as soon as our episode came out fast forwarded to the end heard the secret word at the end which was audio cocktail and emailed us so thanks george vk thanks for for saying the secret word um spoiler alert there is no secret word on this episode but maybe there will be one on the next episode that's why you have to listen to the end of each episode that's right that's the secret so without much more ado, uh, we'll hop into our conversation with the filmmakers behind The Spine of Night, uh, which releases October 29th. Uh, and if you go to spineofnight.com, you can learn how to watch it, which you should. And now here's our conversation with uh, Morgan and Phil. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey guys, we're here with Phil and Morgan. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, uh, the filmmakers behind Spine of Night, which uh, I think will be available by the time this uh, episode is dropping. Where is it playing? Is it playing in theaters? 
I happen to know that it's playing at the Lemley and Glendale because I saw the poster and was excited to talk to you guys about it. Oh, that's awesome. You saw the poster in the wild. I've never, I've never seen in the wild. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Free range poster. There's a bunch of them on my bed back there, but yeah. Yeah. That's cool. What's your guys policy on like when you see a poster of something you worked on in the wild, like do you stop, take a picture with it and tell people that walked by that you worked on it? I would, but this has never happened. Uh, I, I I do not. I because I would feel too awkward about it. I'm just like, okay, I, I see what's going on there, and then I just I just carry on. I say I say take a selfie with it, everyone. Yeah, I think Morgan, you should go to the Lemley right now. Yeah. We'll wait. <laughs> cool. So, spy, so can you tell us, guys, a little bit about your history? Maybe we'll start with you, Morgan, and like kind of your background and how you worked up to Spine of Night. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll try to keep it from being the entire life biography. Um, I did a lot of art in high school. I thought I was going to art to college for art, but I did not get along with the department there at all. They were very traditional and I was really into like comic books and fantasy art and pop art. So I dropped out of that, went over to mass communications, which was, uh, turns out that's journalism, not filmmaking, but I was at a liberal arts school. So, (laughs) so I would just sneak in at night and use the equipment and make, you know, weird horror shorts for myself and live action stuff. Although, I mean, I grew up, you know, as a kid, so immersed in all the rotoscope animation of the late seventies and early eighties. But what are, uh, like, what's like the most famous rotoscope animation from that, from that time that like, a I lot mean, of would know. I mean, Ralph Bakshi's the Lord of the Rings is probably the one most people know. Uh, the last segment of heavy metal, you know, from the early eighties, the Tarna segment is rotoscoped. And then, you know, a lot of the Ralph Bakshi stuff, uh, pretty much everyone, at least of a certain age, has seen that AHA Take On Me video. That's very famous rotoscope work. So those are all sort of like right at the era where I was a kid and watching that stuff. Is that when they did that? Was it like video? Mm-hmm. And then they mm. drew no, no, I mean, well, the, no, the, the Bakshi ones would have been shot on film and then and the rotoscope. Yeah. The AHA one I may have been video, but I'm assuming it was also film. That's a and, good question. That's yeah. a good question because, like, there's a it's sort of an unearthed Tom early Tom Waits music video that I was reading about was this huge leap in being in the first time you could use video for rotoscoping and it, they were developing it to use on Ralph Bakshi's American Pop, but he couldn't get it done in time. So that I think the only thing that was ever really done with it was the Tom Waits video, and that's just all done by hand, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and ours is all done by hand too on a computer, but we didn't like a, there's a lot of new tech that people are using that are like, like AI based stuff that is like sort of rotoscoping looking that's, uh, you know, I'm sure it's, you know, five to 10 years, it's going to be incredible, but it's not, even still, I have yet to see anything that can really match drawing it frame by frame by hand which is kind of unfortunate because it takes forever. <laughs> and when you say frame by frame, is that like 12 frames a second? Yeah, 12. But but even then, like you, if you look at like the old Ralph Bakshi stuff, he still, because his background's in cartooning, he still uses a lot of like holds on the background characters where they, they're only animated when they're doing something, which uh, I always thought looked really weird with humanoid like realistically human characters. And then like, when your wrist started clicking at 32, <laughs> yeah. you were like, ah, yeah. holds aren't so bad. Right, right. I mean, I've made some some questionable decisions and in and, and the brute force approach we took. Uh, you know, I, I had to sleep with a wrist brace for a while, but eventually my hand just got stronger. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very Conan. 
<laughs> right, right, right. So it's a, this whole project was the wheel of pain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, where was I? So anyway, I did. I after I finished college, it wasn't a real film degree, and I didn't know anyone making films. So I spent the next long stretch doing doing graphic design. In what part of the country? Oh, I was in Southwest Virginia. Okay, big film, you know, big film plates. Yeah, you know. I think maybe we fast forward a little bit to that first rotoscoping project. Yes, yes. Right. To, to, to not get, well, not, nothing really happened in that window. I couldn't make films. And then I hated what I was doing with graphic design. And I was like, I want to go back and make films. And I thought, what is the thing that I want that I would make? What is the thing I don't see in the world? And it was all these great rotoscope fantasy films for, I mean, for adults. You know, they're all, they're, they're ju- charmingly juvenile. But I thought, well, that's the thing that, somehow stop being made in the world. And it's a thing I want to know how to make. And I think I have the skills to reverse engineer how Ralph Bakshi was doing it. And so I did a, a series of short films just in my living room. Then one with a, where I actually had some local actors and that one, which is Exordium was like in the same setting as the spine of night. And that made its way over to Phil. And you wrote these these films also, right? Yes. Cool. Yeah, because I'm looking on IMDb and it's like you made a short film and then you made this full-on feature film with a, a pretty awesome cast. Patton Oswalt, Joe Man- Manganiel, Joe M, Lucy Lawless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, and I want to get into the casting and, 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 and dubbing and all of that. But, but first off, I want to understand... You said the the short was shot in your living room, and you mean that literally, even though I assume there's all sorts of fantastical locations that are happening. So basically, you're doing image capture, uh, or performance capture, I should say. I mean, not even trip. really capture as much as just reference. Like, there's no, there was no no automation at all. I mean, it was the only room I had, so I said, you know, I tried to make room. I was living in this really narrow Philly row house at the time. And it was just, there's just nowhere to shoot. But I was like, you know, I, my brother yeah, came that over. That would have been a great time for 9 by 16 framing. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, yes. Um, but, you know, once I could extract the, you know, I take the footage and you can get rid of my tiny apartment and right. make it. Put, put uh, it anywhere you want it to be. Yeah. And uh, it was very freeing. It was much easier to make it on the spine of night where we actually had a full warehouse to run around in and actually, you know, get up to a sprint. But for <laughs> but, your but, short, like, are you acting out the parts yourself? Um, I, I'm in all of the, those early ones. I play, I do about half of them, but often, you know, I was, doing the camera work as well. So I was directing my brother in a gorilla costume or my na- my uh, neighbor Mac as the, as our first mongrel character, the role that Joe Manganiello would take over. Uh, and, you know, he says he's got a part where he wrestles a, a lion and we just had him wrestle a comforter. And so, yeah. <laughs> How much of the actors like face and wardrobe and stuff do you end up you know, I always start thinking it's going to be really helpful to use the costume. Like we made a lot of very detailed costumes. And I think if the live action production values were high enough, maybe you could get there. But once you actually get into the rotoscoping process, it's like rarely is it as useful as you think the clothing is going to be like it, making it look good in animation often means abandoning a lot of the live action details because someone's shirt gets caught on their belt or, you know, you just have to, and so you, it, it, it ends up being much more traditional animation in the moment. It's so much of the rotoscoping comes down to like 
lip sync is it's really really good for lip sync you know really capturing the human mouth and you know like it's amazing how many like actorly details i would never think of that actors professional and otherwise come up with they just do weird things that that if you left to my own devices never would have thought to add like these little finger twitches and sneers in this in the way that they do it i'm curious about just to dig into the that process specifically when you're rotoing a character for an animated film, are you doing kind of basic shapes first and then going in and doing the detail, or is each frame like you're doing the you know the whole thing? Like, uh, I, I mean, I do the whole thing every time, but it's using like traditional animation, like using an onion skin. So I'll take the previous layer, make it a transparency, and manipulate it as I'm working. So like if you know if someone's bending their arm at the elbow, you know I'll select the the forearm in Photoshop on the transparency layer and like rotate it on to match the, the movement speed of their body. So, but then you're still using the previous frame to draw the line work again, not uh, drawing it from scratch with the video. And like, if you look at very like on YouTube, you'll see there's a variety of, uh, modern rotoscope music videos is a Taylor Swift one, but you can tell that they're not referring to a previous line work. They're drawing it completely fresh for every frame. And to get the Ralph Bakshi look because of his cartooning background, we had to do it with the previous frames like you would in traditional animation. Did you experiment with other looks or was it just like, no, you guys are like, we want it to be Ralph Bakshi. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, we, I, we didn't, I had already had the process, like sort of the workflow, which is very Frankenstein together from the short films. And, but I don't think we ever for a second really thought we wanted it to look different from that. It was just like, we both envisioned this in that style as the, to the best of our abilities to recreate. Well, cause it's kind of a, it's kind of a, an expansion of the style from your previous short too, right? The, which mm -hmm. is what got Phil's attention in the first place. Yeah, for sure. And Phil, do you have a background in animation also? No, I don't. I mean, at this point I've written a, a good deal of it. I mean, you were, you're a writer on love, death and robots. Yeah. Right? I, I am almost the only writer on love, death and robots. Are you uh, serious? Have yeah. you seen that show? It's really amazing. Yeah. He wrote the love and death, but not the robots part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wrote a couple of the robots. A couple, yeah. a couple of the robots aren't me, but uh, I wrote a lot of that, a lot of death, not a lot of love in that show. But it's a good title. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but uh, that all came later. You know, when I met Morgan, I had done. You know, I'd been a screenwriter for a little while. Uh, I'd written Europa Report and this movie, The Bleeding House, and had done a couple of scripts that had never gotten made. And I, when I saw, so when I saw Exorium, I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is exactly what I want to make. Let's let let me meet this guy and we'll figure out how to make the like weirdo fantasy animated epic of our, of our dreams. Can I ask how it got on your radar? Yeah. So it, uh, it's, it's so funny. Like, I guess I was always fated to work in animation. So I knew I was just friends with a lot of animators and artists and like comic book artists. I sort of started in comic books and just had always known animators. And so a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine who was an artist on Venture Brothers and other animated things saw Exordium and was like, oh, I bet my friend Phil would like this because he likes super violent fantasy stuff. So so he sent it to me. I was like, hey, you'd probably dig this. And I was like, oh, I don't just dig this. <laughs> like, I, like, I want <laughs> to be this. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I want to go to there. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's how I found it. And at the time, it was in like Machinima. It was like a Machinima 
that's how he saw it. Machinima put it up. When remember Machinima was oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. The yeah. good old days, guys. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> that's cool. And so what about just to hop into the business side of things for a minute? How do you go about starting to finance this thing? And then <laughs> how does casting play into Morgan's it? Morgan's eyes just got big. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the short, the, short, the short answer is, you know, we started financing it just by putting our own money into it. And for a long time, that was it because it was such a small animation team. So we like, so at the beginning, it was just literally just Morgan and me. I was like, do you want to do this? He was like, sure. So then I rented uh, like a cheap warehouse by where I live. I live in, in Rhode Island. There's like a bunch of old empty warehouses and you can just rent spaces. So, so when you space. say a warehouse, you you don't mean like an old soundstage, you mean an actual no, warehouse. No, I, I literally mean yeah. a warehouse. Like, yeah, there's like <laughs> Amazon yeah. workers all over the place. Yeah. Like like yeah, like an old an old mill that has been converted into like like the space next to us was they made vape oil and then this other you know, it was just it was not not a film production space at all. And we then cast a bunch of like local actors and I um, had lived in New York for a while, so I knew friends who were actors from New York, so we brought them up and did all the live action that way. Wait, and the then, script already exists. You guys had already written the script. To, yeah. To, yeah. And then Morgan wrote a draft, and then you guys kind of developed it together? Is that what happened? Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. And that you was pretty like, quick. You were like, less nudity, less blood, less destruction. No. no. <laughs> you guys cut it by 90%, and that's how you got <laughs> Yeah, this is the 10% we left in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For, for those that haven't seen it, this movie is incredibly uh, violent in a very cool way. Yeah, also yeah. incredibly it, naked, don't forget. Very naked, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Full, <laughs> yeah, yeah. full yeah. naked all the time. Yeah. I mean, not, not unlike Rotoscope. I mean, one of the appeals to me in doing the project and in starting the project in this way, it, you know, should your question about the business, was that I knew, I figured if we started it in as uncompromising a way as possible, if eventually we had to compromise a little bit to get more money, we had at least started it in exactly the right way. <laughs> it was, and, and that applies both to rotoscoping and to the nudity and the violence. Like those are both relatively uncompromising ways to make a thing. So, yeah. So we started just us, and then you know eventually we needed to hire animators and uh, et cetera. And eventually, as time dragged on, we just you know we needed more money. So I, I, I yeah. want to pump the brakes there though, because yeah, what was the reason why you needed more animators? Why did you need more animators? Because you just could the two of you couldn't handle it. You were busy. Well, so how did so, it expand out from there? Yeah, I mean, I can't draw for uh, at all. So I was, I so so it, it was always we always needed more than just Morgan. So the whole first year was us trying to find people who could do this style of animation, just because you need more animators, because otherwise it would have taken, uh, you know, I don't want to say a hundred years, but yeah, even but, longer than it already yeah, took us. Wait, but did you guys film? You yeah. filmed the whole thing in live action already. You edited yeah. sound, music, everything. You knew the timing. A lot of kind of the shot selection and stuff like that had kind of been determined already. Right. But but yeah. to Morgan's point, though, you know, sometimes it's a guy wrestling a blanket instead of a lion. Yes. Right. right. But you still probably needed to pay people and do feed people or something. You needed a camera. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we, we paid, you know, not a ton of money. We paid, you know, like, I can't remember what it was. It was maybe like $100 a day or something to people who came to the warehouse to be in the movie. And a lot of people were just friends who came to be... Those uh, you know aforementioned crowd people who weren't going to be holds <laughs> animation holds in the background. Those were just like friends and family and people who thought it would be fun to come hang out in a warehouse with some dorks so for, for a day. But you kind of made the movie before it was even like financed or ready. Yes. To, yeah. Yeah. So there okay. there there exists a live action cut of the movie that, uh, that Morgan and I both thought was like totally comprehensible to anybody. Like I remember showing it to my wife and a friend of hers. 
and being like, right? It, did you get it? And then and they were both they were both like, yeah. And then one of the I mean, people probably had seen the movie. But one of them was like, so what was that piece of what was that piece of cardboard on the ground there? And I was like, which was the what the bloom looked like when we were filming. It's just like this white piece of cardboard. She's like, I was like, oh, you didn't get it at all, because like, you can't. It was it's un, incomprehensible if you don't you know haven't been living inside the script for for months. And that I mean, to be very precise, like so that looks. You know, it's live action. It's like layers of live action layered over each other to like make those crowds. And then it's also just um, cards, like black cards with writing on them that say, you know, super wide shot of army here or, you know, so that so all that stuff has a little bit of timing, but all of that timing would get massaged over the course of, of the animation process as those got filled in and we could better assess how long those shots were going to be. So know? the layers are shot on green screen? Come on, green screen. Well, Ridiculous. how are you putting layers of live action footage on the, top of the, each other? Literally just layering them with, like, with the background. Like garbage look, mats or, or transparencies? Just, or? just turning the opacity down. So when I say incomprehensible, I mean, to, to a person who doesn't know what they're looking at, utterly incomprehensible. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. We just sent some of the behind-the-scenes footage over to QC for the special features for the future Blu-ray. And uh, we just got back an ocean of notes from them. They're like, you've misframed everything. And all like all these shots are messed up. And we're like, that's how we worked. We just that's piled, we we just that's what it was, bunch guys. Of <laughs> you want it behind the scenes. This is that's how it crazy. Works. I guess it yeah. just occurred to me that you could literally pitch an animated movie by making this movie, you know, if you're starting out, making the live action version of the movie for very little money and then saying, here's the movie, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Finance. And for the animation process too, it takes about a day to animate one second of footage. So like having to trim a shot even a little bit is days of lost labor that you've just set on fire. So like it's you like you want to start that at least with this kind of process, you have to start with a extremely tight cut that you're happy with. And then for the scenes where we still weren't sure how they felt, we just didn't animate them until we were ready. Yeah. Well, and so, so I'm curious, so you've got basically the feature length version of the movie, right? And you're like, okay, well, we've been spending a bunch of money running around in a warehouse. My wife thinks I'm insane. How do you go from that to raising real money and then getting a really stellar cast a part of it as well? Like, did you, did you create some sort of sizzle or, or walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So, so you know, we were uh, sans any other producers for a, a chunk of the production. I mean, probably about three years, I, I would say. At which point, I went to people that I'd worked with before, producers that I worked with before, and said, "Here, you know, here's what we have, uh, and here's how the animation is going to look." Because at that point, we had not just the live action version of the movie; we also had portions that were animated and colored, right? So, we, so we, instead of saying, "Here's a crazy script." Here's our crazy live action. It's like here's our script. Here's our live action, and here's how it's going to look. Right? So you, can, you can and really understand it. You know, what were those animated pieces? A hundred percent. Like, did they make it into the film? Yep. Or yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Yep. Great, great. Yeah, but you, we, you but you weren't fully cast yet at that point. No, at that point we had none of none of the the, the big name voice cast, with the exception of Betty Gabriel, um, who was in Get Out because we shot with her before she was in Get Out. She graduated from Juilliard, and we cast her and she came on a train from new york to providence and shot in a warehouse with us and then went on to be in get out and all those Blumhouse movies. well done um, well done yeah yeah she's fantastic um so we yeah so once we had that in place i went to producers that i'd worked with in the past and said you know here, here's here's where we are with this this is the amount of money 
that I think it's going to take to keep us going. Can we, like, what, what can we do? And so part of that process was, you know, yeah, we can get more money, but that is going to mean we're going to need to try to get the voice cast, right? So those two things sort of go hand in hand, you know, to get more money, you need the voice cast and then that makes sense. Um, Yeah. yeah. But people get it at that point, right? People get it at that point. Yes. Yeah. Even, even if, even if you're not a fan, (laughs) say this because one of our producers isn't really a, a nerd, even if you're not a fan of like the nerd genres, you can see it and understand what it's going to be and that it's going to be a relatively unique and uncompromising thing. So That person can be like, oh, yeah, that's some nerd shit. They'd love that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, there'll be fans for this, I'm sure. I hate it, but I'm not sure there'll be fans. Yeah. And so when you say anime, I, I mean, obviously, you know, Morgan, you're saying that it's like one a second a day for an animator. Is it crazy? Exp- like, can you outsource that stuff to India, Korea? Any like, how do you do? Like, what kind of budgets are, do you have to raise to make a feature length animated film? I mean, Phil could speak to the budget, but to the actual labor, like we had a couple of people offer and do like little test runs of doing it at a at a lower cost way, and it just did not look good. Like the like the quality that I was trying to the that I wanted to reach was just so much higher than they were going to spend the time on. So we ended up, I think it's partially why we ended up with such a small crew. I mean, we had it's, at any time me and two other animators. Um, whereas like Ralph, so you didn't go to Fiverr.com. Right. <laughs> you know, would have had 75 or a hundred animators on a process, project like this. But, you know, I mean, I guess Phil could speak to the, how, how much it costs. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you say Fiverr.com. I think I tried that at one point just because we were so desperate to find anybody to, to, to work on it. You know, um, so if you look at the credits, right, you can see we've listed our main animators as, as lead animators. And there's a long list of people that we burned through that were just like, we hired them and they did a shot. And then it was either they couldn't handle the style or they were like, I can't do this. It's too time consuming. The- theoretically, you could outsource this to, which is what a lot of, you know, bigger animated things do. They hire companies in, in Korea or in um, Japan or in India t- to do the bulk of the animation after like the keyframes are done and stuff. But for this style of animation, I mean, it's so nobody does it. So the idea of finding a studio that could, that could replicate the style, um, it just, it never seemed feasible uh, yeah. to, to do it. So I think uh, that the workflow for that is really tricky because it's like having had, like I have a, a handful of friends in animation who's basically their job is to manage that foreign team of animators, right? So there's just like a genuine, like a huge amount of work just to make sure that that team, as talented as they are, sees what you're going for. And so you basically need a lot of middle management that it sounds like wouldn't have made sense. And it kind of only makes sense on a on a series, basically. Like you have the, to keep going to the bank and change your dollars to one, and then <laughs> people are involved in <laughs> like toys games. Just get Zell, please. My, uh, you know, to that my point about knowing a lot of animators, I know also know a lot of like middle management animation mm-hmm. people, and, and um, yeah, they're not drawing or anything; they're just sending emails. Yep. Yeah. And so I mean, he he would show me like what what would come back from those studios, and again, super talented animators overseas, but they just you know, if you're not incredibly precise, he showed me this one shot. I can't remember what show it was on, and it was driving through the desert, and they had clearly said the note was, we need some foliage in this desert, and they had filled it with Christmas trees. So it was like mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just like it, that kind of stuff, but like you know, yeah. for every single shot, it was it was something where you had to be like, okay, we need to redo this, or you're not you're missing this specific thing. So. So we never we never went that route. Uh, although there were a couple of places that you know there was a place in Spain that got in touch with us, and then as Morgan said, we when we gave them a test to see if they could mimic the style, they just it it 
wasn't what we were doing, you know. Just, um, just out of curiosity, because I'm always fascinated by how much things cost, because maybe I have an idea to do like a, you know, five second animated sequence, and I don't know if it, I can do it for $1,000 or $100,000, you know. So do you, get, do you usually pay an animator by the day, like a day rate, or by number of frames or number mm-hmm. of seconds? So we, we did it both ways. When we started, we did it by, by number of frames. But then once we got our core people done, we paid them, I think it was technically by hour, but they were all working a specific number of hours a, you know, a week and then a year eventually. So they all had what amounted to like a set salary. They weren't ever, and we weren't ever pushing them to go into like overtime or anything. We tried to, <laughs> tried to keep it civilized over the grinding seven years that it took. You know? Seven years? Yeah. Yeah, oh, wow. I yeah. missed that part. <laughs> but also paying per frame, like incentivizes faster and sloppier, like, cause they, cause I mean, it, you'd be, you don't have spend the time to correct things or to polish things. Like, so I think we just got better animation when we switched away from that model. Interesting. I would just think, especially if people are working from home, though, I don't know, maybe they didn't work from home three years ago, but that you just don't know how much they're working <laughs> um, no, at the day rate, but yeah. Uh, that's absolutely true. They were working from home, but I mean, you, you get a sense because it's such a small team, right? Very, very quickly, you get a sense of how much they're doing and, and how, um, right, you know, they're who, who's going to be fast and who's going to be slow and meticulous, you know? Um, and then, so, sorry, one last money question, and then we can yeah. get back to creative stuff, but I'm curious, Morgan, this whole time you're working on this movie for seven years, you're doing one second a day. <laughs> um, your beard is like, I hope you took a photo of your face every day. Oh, I mean, I, my passport has this gigantic. <laughs> um, what do you need a passport for, for man? <laughs> yeah. How how in else are you for seven years? Well, how else are you paying the rent and stuff? I know Phil, you're doing a lot of screenwriting and stuff and other things. What are you What are you doing, Morgan? Uh, during oh, that my, time? I mean, I was paid a, a small. Uh, I mean, a, a, as good of a salary as I've ever made. <laughs> but you were allowed uh, to go out of the warehouse once a week. Once a week, uh, you know. I you know. It, so it was enough to like feel like I was contributing, but I mean, for sure, my wife paid for, you know, the, she, you know, she bought a house in that time, paid a mortgage. Like she had a, she's a, she's a grown up who does grown up jobs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And well, she's an I, animation she, widow, maybe. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I was, you know, I was, she was extraordinarily patient with this whole thing. Cause if you had the short films in, it's really been 10 years of this. Uh, and today is our 11 year anniversary. So it's been almost our entire <laughs> marriage. So, uh, no, Do you she remember was, what she looks like. You, well, yeah, you know, I mean, maybe for a few years there, we didn't see each other quite as much as we like, but the pandemic has been oh, yeah. a lot, a lot of time in the apartment. Uh, she was a saint. So that's, uh, that's, yeah, I mean, that's mostly how, how, I made it work. Okay, cool. So, so, um, so let's go back to, you know, you need some casting to get the rest of financing to make this thing actually come out and make it all worth it. Yeah. So, so I imagine you put together a a laundry list of nerd adjacent performers, right? Like people that make sense, whether they're from genre or like, you know, that they are famously a nerd, you know, like Patton Oswalt's an easy, it's like, oh yeah, that guy would love to be in this, right? The people who quote unquote get it. How do you uh, pitch them and how does it work when you're like, okay, well, the the physical performance is done already, you know, Lucy Lawless. So we're just having you step in as a voice actor, but like have the, do they have to match that? Yeah. What freedom do they have? How does that work exactly? Walk us through that, that part of the process. Sure. So 
as far as like approaching them about it, you're exactly correct. I think I've actually used that exact same term, nerd adjacent actors for who, <laughs> for who we approached. So um, at that stage, like when bringing another producer on, we could send them finished animation and say, this is what it's going to look like. And this is the part you're going to play. And then... And you're uh, calling like their agent or something, right? Yeah. You're just looking up on IMDb yeah. Pro. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All, going, all going through their agents. Um, and then I wrote them and, and it wasn't like... I mean, as you would imagine, they weren't reading for it. These were offers, right? It was like, I, I wrote a letter and was like, hey, uh, love your work. This is the movie we made. This is our vision for it. Please, please come join our tiny team of, of weirdos and, and be a part of this movie. And how many days are you asking for? For not very many, because it's, you know, it's unlike filming live action. It, it goes incredibly quickly, this kind of stuff. So And, and with a lot of flexibility, I imagine, as yeah, well. Yeah, a lot of flexibility, yep. So we, I mean, to be very specific, I think we asked for Patton for, we said four hours, but we didn't use, I mean, and, and I think we asked for Lucy for eight, uh, and I think Richard E. Grant for eight, but I mean, we didn't even get close to, to using all that time. Because you, what, because you just have them read, read this, like each line a couple times? Yeah, so, so you know, unlike in a live action shoot, like there's no camera reset, there's no lighting, there's no, I mean, it, it really is, you know, you're just sitting down and you're doing, you're doing the lines and you're focusing on the performance. To get to the second part of your question, the only tricky part about this particular project is, of course, the lip sync, right? Because the, lip, the lips are, are largely done. Um, oh, my goodness. Yeah. So so what you're asking them to do, basically, is, you know, like... Match timing. Match timing. It's um, almost like loop group, right? Like the, uh, yeah, yeah, ADR. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly like that. And so there's a little bit of weirdness with that, right? Because you want to be able to tell your actors that they have freedom to make the character their own, but you have to put the asterisk there that's like, yeah, we can we can change the animation a little bit, but if you can match this timing as much as possible while still getting the emotion that needs to get across, please, please do it. And I have to say, you know, I could never, ever, ever be an actor. And the amount of skill that they all brought to th- that very strange <laughs> request is, is really astounding. Uh, I mean, I, I was very afraid. Uh, Joe was the first one that we did, uh, and we did that in person. So I went to a studio and, and sat in the room with him when he was doing it. And I was just like, like crossing my fingers and being like, I hope, I hope he gets it and I hope he can do it. And he like totally. Well, he's totally a TV actor. He probably yeah, does he, it on half his jobs. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. So, so we, so, so some of the time that, you know, it, it is for this movie in particular, redoing it for timing. So it's, you know, like you say, it's exactly like loop group. Like they do it a couple of times to get the timing right. Then once they have the timing right, we would do it a number of times for performance. And we, I mean, we had enough time that all of them, it was like, we do, we do the whole thing once. And then we had enough time to go back and redo, you know, it was like, oh, now that we've, now that you've done the character from beginning to end, let's go back and do those first scenes again, because you've had the, you know, you've, you've taken the journey already. So let's go back and, and, and redo it. And you never have the actors with each other. They're all recorded on their own. They're all recorded. Separately. And you're, yeah. you're reading opposite them. One of you guys? Uh, no, they don't. I mean, they, nobody's reading opposite them. They're, they're listening to the other performance. You know, oh, right. Right. In their, in their thing. So, so there's, yeah, no, nobody's reading against them. But it was great. I mean, I, I am very happy that I got to bring Lucy Lawless and Richard E. Grant into the same scene together. It's such a such an unexpected like like duo of of actors. It's super exciting and two two of my absolute favorites. So, and it was fun. I mean, Lucy was like, oh, like she was like she really wanted Richard to record first because she wanted, like wanted to be able to sure that she could like match his performance. So it was it was great, so much fun. But yeah, I mean, so that that's the gist of how that worked from, on a on a technical level. I mean, a couple of times. We had to redo a little bit of animation. I had to go back to Patton and ask him to do some lines again because, you know, there's an enormous amount of malleability in editing dialogue 
as long as people are like, like leaving a space between their words. So he'd like run a couple of words together too much. So I couldn't, we couldn't chop it up to fit the animation. So I went back and was like, here's the line. Just, just give me a, a pause between each word. And then he did it. And then we just cut it into the, cut it into the performance. So that's cool. Yeah. Uh, I want to switch gears for a second to just talk about kind of the content of the movie. Obviously, we mentioned already it's like very violent and has a lot of kind of crazy set pieces. Like, how how do you do the live action part of that? Do you are people just like pretending to hold swords and things and stabbing yeah, each yeah. other and knocking and each you're other like, over? Okay, so your eye pops out in this <laughs> shot, and then yep. you catch the arrow. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we had. We had prop weapons like um, I was going to say I can yeah. show you a prop weapon. I know. Oh right! Oh yeah. Whoever listening can't see it, but I'll, I'll yeah, pull yeah, it out. We'll, we'll pull a screen grab though. That's great. Okay. All right. Um, Give me one second. All right. Yeah. So we had a whole range of stuff. Like you know, we had a bunch of dowels, and we'd fit them to be like this one's got a, and we'd have like a cardboard axe head. Or oh yeah, here's here's Phil. Okay, That's so this, is, <laughs> this is the guardian sword. This one is made out of wood. Oh, that is quite large. Yeah, it's enormous. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah, you guys. Cool. Any my my, wow. my brother made that for us. So yeah, we'd have them swing with those, and you know everyone. But I mean, it's a room full of people in their underwear with ridiculous costuming fixed to ask, it. With because uh, yeah. we're not everybody's. There's a lot of nudity, is what I'm saying. How, how exposed are people? Um, one person shot nude everyone nude. else wore their yeah. underwear gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, there's one uh so one male dodd, or female uh female I, I i dodd herself was wearing like a body stocking and then i i mean i have a friend in providence and she notoriously is just always naked so i was like hey do you want to come, want to come be in this movie and she was like yeah great and then she was just naked for us um but everybody else was either in body stockings or in or in their underwear or you know largely largely swinging giant wooden swords in a warehouse so so this actually begs a really important question because you could that could either be the time of your life or uh you know a total nightmare and maybe kind of both on the same day do you have? Did you either of you have that moment of like, what are we doing, or like, oh my god, this is going to be so awesome? Uh, I mean, we definitely didn't. I was hoping no passersby would come in and to see what. <laughs> like, if you just walked yeah. into that delivery, room, for, yeah. <laughs> I got a bunch of vape pens. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> but as far as I could tell, I mean, I was having a great time. Everyone seemed to be having a great time. Yeah, like yeah. It, it wasn't was, cold it was, or anything. I guess. <laughs> no, no, not too bad. Um, yeah, I mean, we just wanted everyone to be comfortable. Like we, you know, we wouldn't ask anything that anyone didn't want to do. I mean, I plenty of scenes in the film. Someone had a shirt on, and I needed to change it, so they didn't. So, like, I mean, it's you're not that bound to what they're doing, but you know, so anyone who was comfortable in running I mean, around in their underwear, we both took our shirts off for the moments that were in the film, which is not something I ever thought I would do. But I was like, I can't. You can't ask other people to do it if you're not willing to do it yourself. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I was I was actually thinking about that the other day. Like, is it a director's job to be willing to do whatever they ask their actors to do? I'm, unless you're hiring like a very specific, like a, I used a to sort a fire breather or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I used to think yes, and then I started working with stunt people, and I was right, like, yeah. oh, well, this is this is different, you know? But but I mean, it does beg the question if you're asking a traditional actor who doesn't have any sort of 
stunt choreography or anything and they are getting padded up and they're going to have to take a fall or whatever like would i do that i don't know that's oh, a tricky thing i, I definitely know. took a fall on those mats and they are not soft i yeah. thought they i thought this is going to be cushy like yeah, a yeah. bouncing yeah. castle like jumping into a they, western hotel yeah. bed yeah. yeah i mean i i think for for us given the sort of that we were really just asking people to come to a warehouse outside of providence and do this that you know on a, on a bigger film set probably directors don't need to do anything they ask the directors to but in this case just to prove to people that like we were we, we, we were willing to do these things ourselves and just make it again to morgan's point make everybody feel comfortable it felt relatively necessary to me and i'm not somebody who takes my shirt off at, at the drop of my hat but i i definitely did that so yeah <laughs> I mean, it, overall, I'd say the mood was very playful generally. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, we had a lot of, you know, games out for people over by the craft table. And like, we're just, and people like running around and pretending to hit each other with swords and committing I mean, acts of fake fun. violence. I have another creative question, actually, because we've talked a lot about like the the main characters are all rotoscoped, right? Their performance. But um, I think there's a very clear stylistic choice of like making them feel almost as if they're, you know, cell animated in kind of like uh, in the foreground, more or less. And your backgrounds are very painterly. They feel sort of watercolory. Again, a, an intentional throwback, I'm sure. But talk to me about the process of painting those or how, how were those done specifically? And like, was that a different workflow in some way? And, and were you doing both of them, Morgan? I am a dreadful digital painter. It's not, just not as I mean, I've done, a f I did the backgrounds for the short films and like they're okay, but they're also not in a painterly style. Uh, we very, very specifically wanted to match that, uh, the Bakshi and Frank Frazetta fire and ice look where he has fully painted backgrounds, cell shaded looking mm -hmm. rotoscope characters. So that was sort of the template we were working from. And then adding what he couldn't do, which is uh, we have like foreground lighting layers that only affect the guys. So like, you know, they're lit by fire or they're lit by, you know, blue lights or whatever. And, and there's like a room color. So they, they always sort of match the space a little bit, which is what we did instead of shadowing, because that's, that would, I think, pull it away from the Bakshi look, but also it's adds a whole nother pass on every shot. Wait, what was the second part Back, of that? Backgrounds. Who did oh, the backgrounds? Oh, right. I did not do any of them. We had we mostly looked online um, and would look for people who were doing this sort of fantasy art that I like. Which there's a lot of people working like concept art and deviant art uh, back when that was more of a thing. You know, so we would reach out to them, and Are I you would just like randomly like on deviant art or on Twitter or wherever like Instagram like finding artists you like and just cold emailing yes. them. Yes, exactly. And uh, when when they were like, yeah, that sounds fun. I'd be like, OK. And then we would so we tried to get it. So each artist was working on each section, which is what we do with the music, too, to try to give each sort of chapter of the film its own background look and sound look. And I would do sketches of, you know, of what each angle was like. I, It was extremely difficult to figure out because you didn't want to pay for more paintings than you needed. So you're like, you know, so I'd have them paint it at double the screen resolution so that I could use it, you know, each quadrant and could zoom in. You know, what is the screen resolution? 1920 by 1080? 
Uh, we did it at 248 by 1080. And then on the actual one that's coming out, we used um, one of those new 4K up, upscaler things and added uh, film grain, which I, I think looks really good on my 4K TV. So yeah, so then I would give them sketches and try to maximize the usage as much as humanly possible. And then send them those and they would send back, you know, proofs. They're like, do you want it lit like this or like that? And we'd just sort of winnow it down. I mean, I think we ultimately had, which was it like six or seven painters? Yeah. Oh, it's no Americans, weirdly. Those were all, I mean, it, it was uh, a relatively nasty Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like uh, disproportionately German. I don't know what it is about German art schools that produce great background painters, but uh, the best, I mean, they were all fantastic, but two of our most reliable and best guys were, were German. There's a there's a huge overlap between like metal and fantasy and like obviously heavy metal is like a big deal in Germany so it doesn't surprise me that <laughs> yeah, got a lot exactly. of German dudes. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Well, I know we talked a lot about the craft and like the technical stuff and the business of it all, but um, yeah, I think yeah you, you should check out the movie if you're listening to this because it's uh it's a wild ride. I had to my nanny was here when I was watching and I had to keep closing the door and turning the volume down because she thought uh, people were yeah. being murdered in my office. I think that's um, the way it should be experienced. If you, the more you can feel like a 17 year old kid. Yes. Like you're going to get in trouble for watching it. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Certainly the vibe we're going for. Yeah. yeah. So I guess my last question before we go into the unpaid endorsements real quick is, uh, is what, like what's next? What's the hope? I know the movie's not out yet, but is there, do you want to move into like the, like big animated studio films, like you want to kind of keep directing. What's like, what, what is this a stepping stone to something else? Or you just want to kind of keep doing this over and over? What's, what's, the, I mean, I, I'd like to keep doing this. Like, I, I mean, to me, what's really exciting. Well, a lot of things are saying about this, but being an independently made feature film that is animated. I mean, you could, there's so few, you know, I mean, we were lucky to be out the same year as uh, Dash Shaw's crypto zoo, but like, you know, there's just, Hardly any. It's certainly made in the West. So I I have always been a big champion of independent art. I don't want to go work for a corporation that's going to tell me I can't uh, cover everything in blood and make sure and want me to put pants on people. It's just not going to happen. So, so. No pants policy. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but do you, would you be okay with spending another seven years on the next movie? My hope is that this will open enough doors that we can finance more animators and do more like have more comprehensive training in this uh, ostensibly dead art form so three years is okay three years would be great three years would feel like a vacation three years is is how long a dreamworks film takes to make almost every project i've ever worked on has taken at least three years so three years would for me would be roughly average i think um but we've certainly you know we've had a lot of time to think about the world and the characters we have, you know, sketches and outlines and, you know, all sorts of stuff we could do if uh, if the demand was there. Although, you know, I mean, it feels like it's so close to live action in a lot of ways, too. I'd love to try my hand at that again at some time in my life. But yeah, I awesome. would do this again if I had to. <laughs> and if, if people want to follow you guys personally, like are you on Instagram or social media anywhere we can kind of check out, like kind of keep track of what you guys are doing? All my stuff is, you know, just like, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook slash the spine of night. And we've got the gorgonaut.net website, which has uh, all the old short films are on there. And, you know, the mailing list, if you want to sign up for a bunch of cool shirts, um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, f- f- fills around. 
Oh yeah, and I I'm mostly on Twitter. My personal Twitter is uh, at pm jeepers j e e p e r s. But that I mean I'm on Instagram too. But I don't. I, to be honest, I barely use either of them. But occasionally, currently I'm on Twitter a lot because I'm trying to get people to see this movie. So <laughs> yeah, that's there's always those people. They're like yeah. never on social media, and then they have something coming out. All of a sudden, they're the got a lot of opinions. All of a sudden, next <laughs> up promotion. Don't yeah. worry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, cool. Do you guys have a couple minutes left to uh, do endorsements with us? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Unpaid endorsements. So my unpaid endorsement is inspired by this conversation. We've been talking a lot about Ralph Bakshi over the, the past 45 minutes. And uh, bef- off mic, I mentioned my favorite is Wizards, which uh, it's been a minute since I've uh, revisited it, but I think is worth the time. What I remember seeing it as a teenager, like I hope some teenagers are listening and can check out Spine of Night to have that kind of psychedelic experience. But that one, uh, Wizards in particular, really mixes a lot of like traditional film on top with animation on top of it. That's pretty wild and um, stylistically blew my mind as a kid. There's like a lot of like like old war propaganda and kind of to me is that like sweet spot of. You know, it's about a war, the war between magic and technology in the distant dystopian future. So it's exactly what you want out of like a 70s, like stoner animation. So uh, Wizards, I hope I didn't step on your toes, guys. <laughs> no, I mean, we could talk about Bakshi films at great length. but sure. it's, it's, um, oh, Okay, unpaid endorsement. I was going to poach. Matt Smith from Tellurides before Phil could do it, but I won't in case he wants to. No, 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 you go ahead. I've got others. You go ahead. Oh, okay. So at Telluride, uh, we saw a couple of short film blocks and we watched this one uh, called The Provider by this guy, Matt Smith. I don't know anything about him, but he's got his several other short films up on his website, Matt Reed Smith, and they are extremely low budget, extremely disturbing and weird and they're kind of gross but they're like long droning shots of discomfort like this one the provider (laughs) is about like this guy goes into a house after a very long drive he turns around it's all in real time (laughs) misses the spot comes back to the thing and then it's a room that has i can only refer to as testicles hairy testicles hanging from the ceiling that he then has to uh get inside of with an implement and it's extremely gross and and then it and like the unwritten world around it where where he takes i mean i don't want to spoil it so people you know the the events of like what is the circumstance in this world why are his kids here what is going on with the the thing it's uh it's just tremendously weird. And like, I mean the most like refreshing thing I'd seen in a while, but then the twist is he shot it in 2003. So it's also old, but Phil has actually seen his newer one that I have the altruist that I have not had a chance to see yet, but I'm extremely excited to. Wow. Cool. And where do can we see these like on Vimeo or something? Uh, yeah, they're on his Vimeo page, Matt R E I D Reed Smith. Great. We'll check that out. Yeah. MattReadSmith.com has, he has a website with all his stuff on there. Yeah, his, his new one is called the altruist and it's highly recommended. It's uh, yeah, really, what did I call it? Like intoxicatingly un- unpalatable. <laughs> that's, that's, that's your thing. Yeah. Yeah. Gross. <laughs> Yummy. <laughs> okay. Uh, you got anything, Phil? 
Yeah, heck yeah, I do. I'm gonna I'm gonna do. Can I do two? I've got two short ones. Okay. Uh, my first one is Metroid Dread, which is on the Switch. Probably doesn't need me to to push it, but it's fantastic. If anybody likes old school Metroids, it's like very much like the um, the side scroller. Side scroller, yeah. It's like Super oh, Metroid. Wow. Again, okay, yeah, once cool. again, they, awesome. they were yeah they were into like first person stuff for a while, which I was not into. But this is very much a return to the Super Metroid style, uh, and I think earns the subtitle. It's pretty. I have I've experienced dread a number of times while playing it, which is exactly what I want from my Metroid game. Uh, my second one is the novels of David Peace, which is not he's a true crime writer. He wrote the Red Riding Quartet, not fantasy, not Roscoe, nothing to do with what we're talking about in this conversation at all. And I am reading his book called Occupied City right now, and it's maybe one of the best things I've ever read. It's exactly my speed. It's like a set in Tokyo in 1948 based on a real case where a guy walked into a bank wearing a, a badge that said he was working for like the anti, like the medical society that was trying to get rid of dysentery in the city and had everybody in the bank drink poison and then robbed and then robbed the bank. And it uh, goes in so many interesting Wait, did directions. they die? Uh, like, like, like yes. Oh my God. I mean, it, wasn't, it was not, yeah, it wasn't like the bank was full of people. It was, I think 10 or 11 people died and, and 13 were, were, poisoned but it, it is written in a really david piece of style is just overheated wrought poeticism like james elroy but but taken farther and the book is structured sort of based a bit on rashomon but rashomon had like 12 different perspectives mm, and it's that's uh, not it how goes, i remember it yeah exactly it goes in all kinds of amazing directions anyway i love it it's, what's it's it really called great. again it's called occupied city occupied city oh wow yep good ones good ones guys okay so I also have two short ones. Number one, uh, both kind of related to this conversation. Maybe not. First one is, uh, you know, I, I, I know everyone knows about Photoshop and, and there's like the magic wand selection brush and there's this, uh, you know, you select it with a W on your keyboard. And uh, there's also the, the circle selector that you can kind of draw an outline. But I don't know if everyone knows about this other part of the selection brush, which is even if you like use Photoshop like once a year, like hopefully you, you know about this, this would be useful. If you're on any of those selection tools, the W selection tools, there's like a little checkbox or like a button at the top of your screen that says select subject. And you literally can put a picture of anything into Photoshop and you hit select subject and like nine times out of 10, it will perfectly select like a person out of a background. It'll do anything. And if you want to just do a real quick, especially if you don't know much about Photoshop and you just want to like cut a person out of a photo. Um, you just use that tool, the selection tool, and hit select subject. It'll grab them. You can just like hit Apple C and paste them into your pages document or whatever. You know, Orin, I was doing just that the other day, uh, the old school way, and saw the select select subject button. I was like, I should try that sometime. So <laughs> yeah, thanks, it's, buddy. <laughs> it's so not like it's not very in your face, and I, I feel like they don't really push it, but it's like an awesome feature. Um, Does it do other- a content aware fill behind it? Like that. Um, kind of oh no! It's basically it just draws a selection. Well, because if you could cut it and then use the the content aware fill is amazing. We use that there for backgrounds go. throughout. Oh yeah, yeah. The oh, I bet you guys did. Shift yeah. F five. Yeah. Content aware <laughs> fill. Love that too. I always recommend if you're doing select subject and then content aware fill to like get a blank background. I recommend going to the select menu and expanding your selection by like five pixels before you do that to make sure there's no weird edges. Um, we found the um, the exact center of your <laughs> Venn diagram, guys. Uh, well, the other thing, it's not, it's kind of Morgan on the edge of both of our Venn diagrams. <laughs> but uh, there is, I saw this tweet 
from this guy named uh, Nick Dale. I don't know. I'm sure a lot of people t- have talked about this movie, but there's this Cuban movie called Soy Cuba. Have you guys heard of this movie? It's super old it's from 1964. It was, I think, made by like communist Russian people uh, in Cuba. And it just has it's just filled with all these impossible shots, like shots where you watch them. And this is a 1964 pre cam invention. And you're like, how the heck did they do this? It's like a woman walking on the street. Then the camera cranes up, goes a- across I, between two BTS buildings. footage of like stuff where it's like, oh, that camera's in a bucket. I like could not find any yeah. BTS footage. People said that the camera operator had was wearing like a harness with a bunch of hooks on it. And literally people are connecting him to pulleys and things. And he's like flying up in the air. But there, he like walks out of this window that has nothing outside. And he's like, you know, 50 feet up in the air. And then just like, it turns into like a drone shot. But it's 1964. And there's like a thousand people in the shot too. I mean, it's just totally nuts. And they made the whole movie for like, you know, $300,000 or something insane. But uh, anyway, if you just look up like Soy Cuba, impossible crane shot, anything about Soy Cuba cinematography, you'll find it. It's kind of all over the internet recently. But if you somehow missed it, check it out. It's worth it's worth uh, marveling at. Well, thanks so much, guys. Uh, so fun. guys yeah, for, yeah, for coming on the podcast. One more time, where can people check out the movie? Where, what's the best way for them to keep track of whether or not it's in their town and how they can watch it when it is available to them? I mean, on all, all social media, look for The Spine of Night, but the mailing list at gorgonaut.net, we're going to put just load up with every bit of salient information you could ever want. Cool. If you have any thoughts about this, if you want to send a, if you want us to forward any messages to Phil and Morgan or anything, um, ask us questions, tell us your comments, tell us what you thought of Spine of Night, you can email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com. Um, you can find us across all social media at justshootitpod. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at smiteypyleg and I'm at okaplan on Instagram. You can follow me at Mr. Matt Mo. This episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Thanks, Sarah. And you're listening to uh, music provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, guys.